0: Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, The novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective, Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she had millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now... Part 4 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation Chapter 8 Dale Everly lay in the cot where he had spent much of the last fifteen years. The possessions he had accumulated during his incarceration had been distributed among the few men he had called friends, and a few others whom he owed favors. Fifteen years! He probably could have gotten far less if he had been cooperative, but they had killed Maureen. His wife had been murdered by those trigger-happy cops, and he wasn't interested in helping them find the money and valuables she had hidden. He hadn't even participated in his defense. There was a trial, the judge had entered a plea of not guilty during his arraignment, and his public defender tried to present his case. Dale was content to just let the justice system carry him along with it, condemn him, and cart him off to prison for what added up to a third of his life. He had been offered deals, a shorter sentence if he cooperated in recovering the missing loot, Apparently, among the items they had emptied from the safe deposit boxes was a diamond necklace worth undisclosed millions that the owner, or rather the owner's insurance company, was desperate to recover. He couldn't care less. The truth was, he had no idea where his wife had left the money. If he had to guess, it was buried in the woods behind their house, but where exactly he had no idea. And any thoughts he did have, he wasn't going to share with the system that had killed the love of his life. No time outside of prison, no amount of money was going to bring her back. He was twenty-nine the day he entered prison. Marine was twenty-five the day the Danville police killed her. When he was caught, and the chief had ordered him to raise his hands, the first thoughts that ran through his mind was that he had been double-crossed by their inside man. Then, after they had taken him to the station and booked him, he overheard a radio call that the suspect was dead. They had blown it. Any leverage they might have had over Dale... The opportunity to exploit the doubt he felt about being betrayed went right out the window. Dale never saw Marine again. He wasn't even allowed to attend her funeral. He never told anyone about the third person that was part of the heist, or the mastermind who had recruited them all. Not out of any sense of loyalty, but because he didn't want to help the police in any way. Their plan had been a good one. They had timed their egress from the bank to coincide with the morning roll call which occurred an hour before the bank opened. The majority of the police would be attending the daily briefing, while the overnight shift would be heading back to the station. Dale had managed to piece together the events of that morning that contributed to him getting caught and Maureen killed. They never could have anticipated a young girl going missing, drawing virtually all of Danville's police to the downtown area. But even with that, there should have been enough time for Deputy MacDonald to send a message to warn them. Something had gone wrong. When they received the page, instead of the eight minutes they were counting on, the police were able to converge on the bank from multiple directions in less than two. Maureen had gotten away from the bank. The contingency plan she had, Operation Soccer Mom, had obviously worked that far. With the unfortunate happenstance of the station janitor recognizing Dale, it didn't take long for them to discover that he was married, and the couple was living in Maureen's old family home on the outskirts of town. It still should have been enough time for Marine to make her escape, but the police had caught up to her while she was still in the house. Her attempt to escape into the woods through an attic window was thwarted by a bullet. Liam had not reached out to Dale personally, never sent him a letter or came to visit, but he did manage to get messages to Dale via other prisoners. He'd pay off family members of other inmates to pass along notes, but Dale never responded. After a while, the query stopped. Either Liam had given up, maybe even died, or perhaps had discovered where Maureen had hidden the money and valuables after all. Though if that had happened, he had a feeling he would have heard about it one way or another. Dale's time in prison hardened his soul. He went through all the motions of all the rehabilitation programs, but none of them really took. He made no efforts to shorten his sentence with the repeated requests that he tell law enforcement where the money was. He, of course, had his theories, but he kept them to himself. He sometimes wondered if someone had come across the loot and just walked away with it. He would have. Let's go, Everly, a guard said. Dale sat up, careful not to bump his head on the bunk above him. The cell door was open at this time of day. He stood up and offered his wrists to the C.O. for handcuffs. Put your hands down, Everly, the guard told him. You're a free man as of two minutes ago. Time for you to get your ugly mug out of my prison. Dale lowered his arms and found himself standing a little taller. He smiled and walked toward the door to the cell block that connected to the corridor, leading to the intake and outtake areas. They passed through several doors, each of which buzzed and clicked in succession as he got closer and closer to freedom. He could swear the air was getting sweeter with each step. Finally, he was led up to the counter of the property room. The guard read the number off his prison-issued shirt and then disappeared into a maze of shelves. When he returned, he held a basket that contained the clothes Dale was wearing when he was sentenced, a second-hand suit his second-rate lawyer had bought for him, and an envelope. He can change over there, the guard told him, nodding toward a door that opened into a closet-sized room. When he emerged, the basket now held his prison grays. The watch that had been a little tight when he went in hung loosely on his wrist. The wedding ring still fit perfectly. They handed him a check that represented payment for his work over the years at various prison jobs minus the funds to cover his infrequent purchases at the prison commissary. You gonna dig up that treasure? The corrections officer, who had escorted him from his cell, asked. What treasure? Dale asked. Yeah, that's what I thought. The cio replied. Go on, get out of here. Dale looked at the door marked exit. It buzzed and clicked, waiting for him to step through it. He did so. He led him down another short hallway to one final door. He waited in front of it for that harsh buzz and the motorized click, but there was none. He pushed on the door. It opened. The air on the side of the wall was different somehow from the air in the prison yard. The sun was warmer, and a cool breeze reminded him he was still alive and free. Chapter 9 Jennifer pulled up to Nate's house. It was Saturday morning, and after a week dominated by the aftermath of her battle with the dean, she was ready for a break. Robert Patterson had a talent for making her life miserable. If only he would apply some of that energy to improving the department. She stepped out of the VW and walked up the cement path that led to the broad wooden porch. The name of their joint venture, Rainy Day Investigations, was painted on the frosted glass of the front door. It was barely noticeable from the street, but as you walked up to the house, it let you know you were at the right place. Jennifer pulled the outer storm door open and reached for the door handle. Instead of the round knob she was used to, there was a lever atop a big bulky keypad. She pushed down on the lever but discovered it was locked. There was a keyhole on the new digital lock. Jennifer tried her key, but it was a completely different shape. Had she missed a memo? She rang the bell and heard the chime sound inside the house. A few moments later, the door opened, revealing Nate wearing what Jennifer had come to think of as his weekend uniform. Pressed khakis, a plain polo shirt, and polished loafers. She wondered if he ever wore shorts and a t-shirt. What's with the new security? she asked. Were we robbed? No, of course not, unless you count the constant raiding of my refrigerator by your people. Jennifer was surprised by Nate's statement. He had always made it clear that Jennifer's staff was welcome to anything in the fridge, although much of it was more suited to Nate's taste rather than the less sophisticated palate of a college student. He always made sure to include more dorm room friendly fare as well. But that wasn't the part that really bothered her. My people? she asked. I thought we were a team. Dave does as much work for you as he does for me. He also leaves papers and books and files all over the house. Emily thinks my sofa is her dining room. And Bits has rewired everything to the point that I can't even turn my own lights on and off. I gave them all spaces of their own. All I ask is that they respect mine. Remember that this is also my home. Okay, that sounds entirely reasonable, Jennifer agreed, sensing that there was a growing fury behind Nate's words. I'll have a talk with them, but that doesn't explain the keypad lock. Are you going to make us all ring the bell when we want to come in? That sounds like a lot of up and down for you. You'll each have individual access codes, but they won't work on weekends. You don't want us here on weekends? That's when we get the most done. I have obligations at the university during the week. The weekends are the only time we can catch up on our investigations, and all our equipment is here. Well, maybe we could keep it at your place. Jennifer paused. She looked at Nate, concerned. Can I come in and talk with you about all this? I need to pick up some notes for the Sunday in San Francisco show. Nate stood aside and allowed her to enter. Madge trotted up to Jennifer and was rewarded with a double scratch behind the ears. She could tell Nate had been cleaning. The house smelled fresh. The coffee table was gleaming with a selection of magazines atop it spread out in mathematical precision. Getting ready for a photo shoot in Home Beautiful? she asked. Nate ignored the comment and took a seat in a chair. She could see that he must have been straining his shoulder with all the work he was doing around the house by the fact that his right arm was hanging loosely by his side. He cringed when he placed it on the armrest of the chair. Jennifer walked toward the sofa and sat on the end closest to Nate. She leaned forward resting her elbows on her knees with her chin perched on her folded hands. Is this about the seance? she asked. No, he replied instantly. She waited for him to expand on his curt answer, but no additional explanation was forthcoming. Have you talked to your mom? Maybe apologized? Nate became offended. What do I have to apologize for? You were the one letting her get bamboozled by that phony psychic. I told you, Nate. I didn't have enough information to make a judgment at the time. That's bullshit, he insisted. He looked away from her, shaking his head almost imperceptibly. So it's just the extra people in your house seven days a week, not respecting your property and privacy? That's it, he said. Jennifer nodded. It has nothing to do with the fact that from all the cases we've investigated over the last six months, we've made only a few hundred dollars? 275. He corrected. All of which has gone toward expenses, Jennifer pointed out. Dave's salary comes from a grant, and Emily works for class credit, and Bits doesn't believe in money, so he's easy. Nate grunted. I understand your concerns. We entered this as partners, and I know I promised we'd be able to turn this into a viable business. But you just need to be patient. Dave and I are chasing down some very promising leads. I need you to talk to me when things like this come up. You can't just lock us all out without any warning. Madge walked up to Nate and placed her chin on his lap. He tried to ignore her, but he gave her a scratch on the forehead anyway. Jennifer asked a question she didn't want to know the answer to. Do you want to end this partnership? We can find someplace else. Bits is always offering to hack us into a rent-free penthouse office suite in the Prudential building. Nate chuckled at the idea, letting go of some of his frustration and anger. He turned and looked at Jennifer. She was being a friend, just what he probably needed right now, and he was too stubborn to allow himself to take advantage of her empathy and compassion. No, I don't want you guys to go. And you're right. I should have handled this better. I'm sorry. I've just been feeling a little overwhelmed. By the money? No, I get enough from my disability to keep the lights on, though a paying case or two would help. Your mother? She and I have been down this road before, We'll sort it out. It's that I'm... Nate trailed off. Not a cop? Jennifer asked. Nate looked at her and then nodded. Yeah, I really miss it. Jennifer couldn't help but feel a twinge of guilt over that. It was Nate's effort to save her while she was falling off the roof of a 12-story apartment building that had led to him taking early retirement from the San Francisco Police Department, the only job he'd ever known. Because of his selfless actions... She was alive, and he was falling down a well of depression. Jennifer sat up straight and looked around. What can I do? she asked. About what? Nate asked back. To help you get this place back in shape. I can see you've been ignoring the doctor's advice to use your arms sparingly. I'm your maid for the day, she declared. Nate smiled skeptically. You'd be the most highly educated maid in history. Jennifer rose to her feet. One of my jobs when I ran a nonprofit during college was cleaning the bathrooms. That certainly sounds like a very frugal nonprofit. I can manage the kitchen, but if you really wouldn't mind taking on the bathrooms, the front door opened. Bits stepped in and saw the two of them on the couch. How did you unlock that? I haven't given you the codes yet, Nate said. Bits smiled. It's kind of cute that you think that an off-the-shelf lock like that could keep me out. I'm going to choose not to be offended, though. He walked through the living room and up the stairs. Jennifer looked to Nate, expecting a response to Bitt's comment. Nate shrugged. I thought he might at least try knocking first. Chapter 10 Maureen Everly knew that she was dead. She no longer felt the passage of time like she used to. She didn't get tired or hungry or experience any of the physical needs that used to mark the hours of her day. Exactly how and when that had happened wasn't quite clear. Memory was a tricky thing. She knew her name, knew that she had lived in this house, and when she wandered from room to room, she could recall specific events that had happened in each of those places. Little by little, she had been collecting those memories and piecing back together her life. Marine looked out the windows, but never ventured outside. She had a fear that she only existed this way inside the house, and if she left it, She would lose her tenuous hold on this, whatever it was. Was she a ghost? She had a sense that there was some purpose for her, some reason why she hadn't gone to heaven, or maybe hell. But what that reason was, she didn't know. Marine couldn't help but smile as she watched Danny sitting at the small desk in his room, drawing intently. He had taken several sheets of paper, folded them in half, and was making a comic book. She tried to follow along with the story. Danny was into pirates, and this story featured a very unlucky one named Eric. He had two peg legs, two hooks for hands, and an eye patch. It took some time for her to realize the boy could see and hear her. It wasn't until he had turned to her one day and asked if she was a friend of his mom. She told him that she wasn't, that she used to live in the house and was happy to see a new family making it their home. So far, Danny was the only one who could see or hear Maureen. She had tried talking to the other members of the family, but none of them seemed to be aware of her in any way. When he wasn't there, time seemed to skip around. She would watch him go off to school, and then in what seemed like the blink of an eye, he would be back, playing with his sister in the backyard until dinner time, and then diligently working on his homework and then his drawings until bedtime. Sometimes, if she focused, she could take in the house around her like she did when she was alive. She would watch a fly buzz around on a windowpane, or the sunbeams light up dust motes as they floated across the room. Moving through the house was different. It was more of an act of will than a physical effort. She would imagine herself across the room, in the hallway, down the stairs, and then find herself in that very spot. For a long time before the foremans moved in, Maureen only remembered being in the room at the end of the hall. It had been her room when she was a child. Although her memories were fuzzy and incomplete, that was something she was certain of. She couldn't remember leaving that room until the day when Marcia and Greg started remodeling the house. She was grateful that they left her room mostly like it was, though the bed was much nicer than the ratty old twin mattress on a rickety frame, she remembered. It was around that time that she began exploring the rest of the house. The changes Marcia had made were very nice, and revealed a beautiful house under the layers of paint and wallpaper that had been added over the generations. But she remained fearful to go outside. One afternoon, she was watching the children play under the large oak through the window of her old room. Danny was making an effort to climb the tree, but was unable to grab a hold of the lowest branches. He tried to scale up the rough bark of the trunk to get himself closer, and his fingers almost made it around the thick branch, but he came up short and fell to the ground, much to Daisy's amusement. A memory came to Maureen. She was in that tree. She fell. She looked up at the ceiling and a moment later found herself in the attic. Next to the attic window, she could see the foliage of the oak tree within arm's reach. Then she remembered something else. The attic had been cleaned, and it was now filled with Christmas decorations and other odds and ends. But the foreman's renovation efforts didn't extend to this space. Below the window, there was a board missing, exposing a space between the studs. Maureen went to Danny's room, eagerly awaiting his return. The clock told her it would be time for dinner soon. And as if reading her thoughts, she heard Marcia call out to the children to come in and wash up. A few moments after that, Danny raced into his room. Hi, Marie, he said when he saw his friend perched on his bed. Hi, Danny. Can you help me with something? she asked. I gotta get ready for dinner, he answered. It will only take a minute. Danny smiled. Okay. He was curious. Marie had often talked to him, telling him stories about her childhood, and she was a good listener but she had never asked him to do anything for her before. Grab your chair and follow me into the hallway, Marine said. Danny obediently picked up the wooden chair in front of his desk and carried it out of his room. Marine was standing in the middle of the second floor hallway below a rectangle in the ceiling that had a chain dangling down from it. Danny had asked his father about it. He told him it was the attic. Come here and stand on the chair. You should be able to reach the chain, Marine told him. The boy placed the chair beneath the spot she indicated. The end of the chain was an inch too high, but Danny gave a little jump and managed to grab onto it. He pulled and the door swung down, revealing a ladder tucked up inside. Move the chair, Maureen instructed. Danny did so. He inspected the ladder and saw that it unfolded like a grabber toy he had. He grasped the bottom step and pulled it back. It extended much more easily than he had expected. Are we going up there? he asked. Yes, don't be afraid. It's just like another room. I'm not afraid, Danny declared, then started trudging up the steps. There was enough light coming in for Danny to see the piles of boxes and old furniture. Over here, Maureen said from the window. Danny walked over and looked outside. Wow, I can see the whole yard from up here. Yes, it's beautiful, she said. Why did you need me to help you get up here? Can't you, like, walk through walls and ceilings? Danny asked. Kind of, Marine answered. But what I need you to do is see if there's a box in that space under the window. Danny kneeled down and inspected the gap. I think I see something. He reached inside, oblivious to the cobwebs and dust, and pulled out a slender box. Marine had another flash of memories, of her stuffing the box in the hole before crawling through the window and out onto the tree. What's inside? Danny asked. Why don't you open it and find out? Danny sat on the floor, placed the box in front of him, and lifted the lid. Daisy skipped into the kitchen and sat down at the table. Did you wash your hands? Marcia asked her. Daisy held up her freshly washed hands for her mom to see. Where's your brother? Greg asked. He went up in the ceiling, Daisy told him, as if it was something he did every day. Marcia and Greg exchanged a puzzled look. I'll go see what's going on, Greg offered. He wiped his hands on a dish towel and walked briskly toward the stairs. About halfway up, he caught sight of the extended attic steps. Then, as he got closer, he saw Danny's desk chair pushed off to the side. Danny, are you up there? There was no answer. Greg climbed the ladder to the attic. It only took a few steps for him to spy Danny at the far end of the narrow space, looking through photographs from an old, dusty box. What worried him more was that he appeared to be having a conversation with someone. Danny, what are you doing? he asked as he completed the ascent into the attic and crossed over to where his son was sitting. Hi, Dad, Danny said, smiling. I helped Maureen find her old pictures. Maureen? Marcia had told Greg about Danny's odd imaginary friend, but they had both written it off to his active imagination. Danny pointed to a photograph of a man and woman sitting on a porch that looked very much like the one in front of their own home. He tapped the face of the woman. That's her, he said, Greg sat down across from Danny and picked up the photo. He turned it over and saw written on the back in casual script, "Marine and Dale, Summer, 99. He glanced down at the floor. There were a multitude of other photos spread out. Some were contemporaries of the one he held. Most of them were much older. Black and white snapshots mixed with a few faded Polaroids. Is this how Danny had come up with his imaginary friend? Had he found these photos and used them as an inspiration to bring her to life? He felt something cold over his shoulder, but when he looked, there was nothing there. Chapter 11 The town had grown considerably while Dale had been in prison. He barely recognized the downtown area, though the bank he was caught burgling was still there. It had received at least one major makeover and was now part of a larger National Financial Services company. The computers he had access to in prison were mostly used in the context of learning skills for his life after incarceration. They were old, outdated, and their internet connection was severely locked down. The unrestricted high-speed access he found at the local library blew him away. It was a far cry from the slow-painting screens of the America Online account he had shared with Maureen, and the fact that he could stream videos for free of almost anything imaginable had exceeded his expectations. He likened it to a child who had spent his summers in a small splash pool in his backyard, being introduced to the ocean. There was just so much of it. Although iPhones and Androids weren't available when he went into prison, Dale still knew what a smartphone was. The newer inmates complained how much they missed them. After the library, he stopped by a mobile phone store. The walls were lined with dozens of variations of the full-screen devices, playing the same content he was able to access in the library but without any wires tethering them to a specific location. He remembered when he had bought a flip phone for Marina on her birthday, one that had a color screen atop the physical keyboard. At the time, it was the latest tech, and even could take grainy photographs. The one piece of advice he had taken to heart from the other inmates was to get himself one of the modern devices. These days, you couldn't do anything without one. He picked out the cheapest Android model they had, along with a bargain-priced service plan, and returned to the halfway house he had been assigned outside of town near Walnut. He settled into his room. It was tiny, not much larger than the cell he had recently vacated, but there were no bars, no toilet in the corner, and he didn't have to share it with someone who might kill him if he snored too loud. The bed was too soft. It felt like he was laying in a pile of marshmallows. He had a chair and a small desk which he sat at to unbox the phone. There was no instruction manual, just a miniature pamphlet that illustrated how to insert the tiny SIM card the salesperson had given him, and then turn it on. He declined setting up an email account and skipped the screen where it asked if he wanted to add any contacts. The icon that indicated the signal strength bounced between one and two bars, but he was still able to use the web browser. Out of curiosity, he plugged his name into the box that asked him what he wanted to search for. The results that showed up were mostly news articles about the bank job. One of them had a picture of him with Maureen, his arm around her, both of them smiling for whoever took the photo. He didn't recognize it, but it looked like it was from before when things went bad. When they were happy. He turned the phone off and slumped it back in his chair. He hadn't thought about what he expected, but life on the outside was nothing like it had been before the robbery, and it was different still from the years he had spent behind bars. When Dale had first arrived in prison, he didn't talk to anyone, he found the narrow social groove between the gangs and lifers with guys like him who just wanted to do their time in peace. Getting to that place wasn't easy. He had endured numerous assaults, some of which left him in the infirmary. But once it was known that he was not interested in participating in the dominant social structure and that he wasn't a threat to anyone, he was mostly left alone. One exception was Hakim, the jailhouse lawyer. He was a lifer, convicted of killing six rival gang members and he freely admitted that he was guilty of those crimes. He had discovered the small group of inmates that spent their time among the law books the prison provided in the library, and found he could make sense of the convoluted text. He helped other prisoners with appeals, deciphering correspondence with their attorneys, and filing frivolous civil rights complaints, which at the very least got them a free trip to court, even if the cases were summarily dismissed. Hakeem had approached Dale after he had settled into his I-just-want-to-do-my-time lane, asking questions about Maureen. He had researched Dale's case and knew the man had lost his wife in the aftermath of the robbery. He also learned that she was a full-time employee of the bank and that many companies offered their personnel life insurance as part of their benefits package. Dale insisted he didn't care about any of that. Hakim assured him he understood and offered to look into the matter on Dale's behalf for a small commission if he was able to collect. Dale agreed, assuming nothing would come of the matter, But nearly a year later, Hakeem notified Dale that he had settled with the bank's benefits provider for the full balance of Maureen's life insurance policy, nearly $15,000, of which Hakeem took his 10% and offered to set up an investment account for Dale minus another small percentage. The account had grown to nearly $50,000 since then, so he was relatively secure financially. It wasn't the need for money that caused him to obsess about the fact that somewhere out there, Maureen had left him a duffel bag filled with cash and valuables but that it represented a connection to her, a chance to complete what they had started. He no longer had the same goals as when Maureen and he had made plans to start a life and a family. In all likelihood, if he did discover where she had hidden it, he probably would give it all away to a charity or youth group Maureen had worked with. She had always wanted to be a mother, and this would be a small way he could honor her memory. When the police and later the prosecutors had asked him where she had stashed it, he kept quiet not even denying he knew where it was. The truth was, he didn't have any idea. That was something they had skipped in their meticulous planning. Nevertheless, Dale had a strong feeling that Marine had stashed it someplace he, and perhaps only he, would be able to figure out. But where? There had only been a short amount of time, less than an hour between when she had escaped out the back of the bank and when she was shot by the police trying to evade capture at the house. When he had been processed out, Dale was advised that he didn't need to return to Danville. He could have chosen to meet the requirements of his parole in a different judicial district, and although the thought of returning to any place near the town that took Maureen from him was painful, he wasn't going to leave until he found what she had left behind. Dale paced the length of his room. He found himself counting the steps. It was an activity he used to pass the time while in jail. He memorized his cell so completely that he could navigate it with his eyes completely shut. There was a knock at his door. Come in, Mrs. Laughlin, Dale said. In the short amount of time he'd been staying at the informal halfway house, his landlady stopped by, it seemed, almost hourly, checking to see if he needed anything. At first, it was annoying, but then he realized it made her feel good to be useful, so he accepted her invitation to join her for dinner or watch her stories on TV and helped her with things around the house. Mrs. Laughlin had been married to an ex-con who had gone straight after serving his time so she had a soft spot for men in similar situations. Mr. Laughlin had died of stomach cancer some years earlier, but the house was littered with photographs of him and Mrs. Laughlin at various tourist traps around Northern California. The door opened, only instead of Mrs. Laughlin, there was a man in a Danville police officer's uniform, Liam MacDonald. Good afternoon, Dale. Mrs. Laughlin was kind enough to let me in. Dale's eyes narrowed and his muscles tensed. The officer smiled. No need to get riled up, Liam said. I just came by to see how you were doing. Dale didn't reply. Come on. You don't still blame me for what happened to Marine, do you? I tried to talk to you. I sent you messages. You never gave me a chance to explain. There's nothing to explain, Dale answered. We knew there was a chance something could go wrong. We all knew the risks. That's right, Liam agreed. I just can't help but feel you hold me responsible. I was the one who was supposed to send you that page. But when the call came in about the missing girl, everything went to shit. Instead of being at the station in the middle of shift change when the alarm came in, the whole force was downtown. I helped her escape, you know. That janitor hadn't recognized you, she would have made it. If there's anyone you should be mad at, it should be him. He's still around. I could get you his address. You could pay him a visit, get a little payback. Dale ignored the suggestion. Liam took a step into the room so he could close the door. I tried to get to the farmhouse ahead of them to warn her, but I was too late. Dale shook his head. I don't understand why she went back. The officer shrugged. We found a backpack with some clothes, money, and personal items. I'm guessing she didn't want to leave without them. Money? Money wasn't from the bank. That's what you're thinking. She must have had her own emergency stash. As she ditched the bank money, she would have needed something to go on the run that wouldn't be traced back to the robbery. Dale nodded. Marine was always thinking ahead, he remarked. Liam continued. She was in the house when the posse arrived. Some trigger-happy rookie spotted her trying to escape out the attic window under that old oak. If she had made it to the woods... Dale closed his eyes, surprised to feel a tear rolling down his cheek. He knew the rest of the story. The coroner testified she was likely dead before she hit the ground. The cops had searched the house, her car, the woods, for any sign of the missing money and valuables, but had found nothing. You never found it, Dale said with his head bowed. The money? Not for lack of trying. Think I'd still be an underpaid civil servant in this town if I had? I waited. Fifteen years for my partner to get out so we could find it together. Dale didn't respond. Unless, of course, you already know where it is. Dale looked up. What makes you say that? I'm living in a ten-by-eleven-foot room a stone's throw from the town that took my wife. If I had my hands on that loot, I would be in the wind by now. Without cutting me in for my share? The officer asked. Liam crossed over and sat on the bed, closer to Dale, so he could speak in a lower voice. Don't forget, I'm not the only one who is expecting a cut for that haul. Do you really think if we found it, our friend wouldn't show up to collect? Is he? Dale started to ask about the anonymous mastermind who had planned the job, but stopped himself. Liam shrugged. All I know is he's not the kind of man who would forget a $10 million payday, and I always had the feeling he was just a middleman. There was someone else, higher up, pulling the strings. This was the first Dale had ever heard of any sort of boss behind the mastermind, and for some reason the thought of it scared him. He had heard stories on the inside of shadowy organized crime figures orchestrating big payday thefts, hiring low-level crooks to carry them out, and punishing failure with death. Could he have gotten caught up in such a situation? Is that why Maureen had died? So, what do you say, partner? Liam asked. Fine, Dale said after a moment. So, where is it? I have no idea. If you haven't found it by now, I don't know where else to look. Maybe she threw it into a culvert on the side of the road and some passerby picked it up. That doesn't sound like something Marine would have done. It took her nearly an hour to make the twenty-minute drive from the bank to your house. Somewhere along the way, she hid that money someplace where she knew you would find it. Dale agreed with Liam, but didn't want to admit it out loud. Come on, think, Liam urged. You must have the answer somewhere in there he said, rapping Dale's head with the knuckles of his right hand. Dale grabbed the officer's wrist and twisted it into an uncomfortably painful position. Liam locked eyes with Dale. Not a smart move, my friend. Assault on a police officer with your record will get you ten more years behind bars. Dale let him go. What makes you so sure I have the answer? he asked. Because, Liam said as he rose and crossed to the door. She loved you. Dale watched the man go. The unspoken conclusion to the conversation was that their partnership wouldn't be over until he found that money.